Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that we get to be together. We get to celebrate who you are. We get to celebrate that, that God, that you, for reasons that are in your mind, that you conceived of us, that you conceived of creation, and that in and through and for Jesus, you created us. That we would that we would rejoice in your name, that we would praise your name. And God, we are living testimonies to your goodness and your grace. So God, I pray that we would honor you in how we sing and how we pray and how we think and how we love one another today. And God, how we approach your word. Lord Jesus, we, we praise your name. We know that in you, we are held together and that you are carrying us to the end where we will be fully and finally reconciled and glorified to share in your joy and glory forever. Amen. So we come to this passage as we're going through the book of Colossians. And we've talked about the last couple of weeks how, um, about what Paul's relationship was to this church, how he didn't know this church, but they were like spiritual grandchildren to him. And so he loved them and he was, he was passionately and committed praying for them. He was praying that they would be filled with, with knowledge and wisdom so that they would know and be able to discern the will of God and they'd be able to walk in a manner that was worthy of the Lord. And so he's telling them, he's thanking them for, for he's thanking God and praising God for their reputation as a people who, who love God, who know God, who love one another. And then he, he, he prays for them to continue in that. And when we get to this part, it seems to be a little bit of an aside, and it, it kind of is. He's in the middle of this prayer. It's a continuation of this. And he's talking about how he, that the, these people, he was praying for them and, and, and rejoicing that they were delivered by our Father into the kingdom of his Son. And then what we're going to look at today is how he takes this aside and he says, you know, who is this Son? It, and, and what we believe about this little passage here that we're going to be looking at is that it is a, it's a hymn. It's a continuation of this prayer, but it is, it is a hymn. And we don't know 100%, um, honestly, like, is, was this a hymn that was written before by Paul? Was it a hymn that was written by, by someone else that Paul is now quoting is it a hymn that Paul is writing on the fly right now? We, don't, we aren't sure, but most people are in agreement. This, this is a hymn. It is a hymn of praise to Jesus that, tr- that teaches these incredible theological truths. We believe, and I, I think it's, it's most likely, that it is something that the church there would have been familiar with. And it's something that he would be saying to them, hey, you know these things to be true. You know this you know that this is true about our Jesus. What's basically happening here is that we see Paul kind of on a roll talking about this Jesus and he breaks into song. And that used to be a thing in sermons. Does anybody remember, like, did anybody have, uh, go to a church where the pastor sometimes in the middle of the sermon would just get on such a roll, he just break into a hymn? Yeah, anybody? I'm just curious. Like, show of hands, did you have that? Okay. So those of you who 
experience that, you probably either cringed, depending on the vocal abilities of the pastor, you either cringed or it could have been something really beautiful. But most of you who haven't experienced that, you don't know what you're missing out on. And don't worry, I'm not going to do that today because um, I don't I don't need that kind of cringing. But the but the thought was, and I've been in those kinds of sermons where they're just they're just so fired up, they're just so going, they're just on such a roll that they just break into this hymn that they are thinking about, maybe Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art, and they just break into song. And when it's done kind of spontaneously, it's this beautiful thing. And that's that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's praising God for the reputation of the Colossians. He's he's sharing with them his pleading prayers to God that that they that they would increase in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge of his will. He prays that they would be filled with thanksgiving and awe that they have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he just breaks into sin about this hymn about Jesus. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." When you think about it in that way, you can almost hear Paul singing this at the top of his lungs as he is writing it. And it is a theologically rich hymn, and I just want to look at it, and I don't want to do too much with it because I don't want to take away from the overarching kind of awe that is, that is on display here, but it is theologically rich. It is what Paul is using as a foundation of these things that we know about Jesus. And it is incredibly important. He talks about who Jesus is. He says, first he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And that word image can be um, interpreted as kind of like a representation. But more importantly here, it is a, a manifestation. So it's not just, he's not, Paul's not just saying like he is the image, like he is a a representation or a symbol or in the likeness of. He's saying he is the manifestation of. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And of course, Jesus actually says this about himself, about being the exact imprint or being the manifestation or being the image of. In John 14, when Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the testimony of Jesus is that if you've seen him, he's seen the Father. The testimony of the author of Hebrews is that he is the exact imprint of And the testimony of Paul here in the letter to the Colossians is he is the image of the invisible God, the manifestation of the invisible God. And this is a truth that we need to make sure that we just consider and let it wash over us over and over again, that Jesus is not merely a man who is as close to God as we can get. He is God. And that means, and I've said this many times before, but it's so critical. It means we can know who God is. It is is one of the top objections to Christianity or to just any kind of worship of God that is out there, which is simply the idea, well, how can you possibly know who God is? I mean, if God is real, then how could you know him? And the answer from Scripture is simply, through Jesus. That by reading about him, by knowing him, by being abiding in him, by communing with him, you can actually know God. You can know what he is like. You can know how he responds. You can know what he thinks. We can't fully grasp it. We can't fully understand or make sense of all of it because we are human, but we can know him through Jesus. And so he makes that statement. He is the image of the invisible God. And then he's going to kind of break it into two sections. He's going to talk about this, the relationship of Jesus to creation and the relationship of Jesus to us, the new creation. So his relationship to creation. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but this doesn't mean that Jesus was created. This often gets taken out of context and stands on its own. You can look at the preponderance, I mean, just a huge amount of evidence to the contrary. We know that Jesus was not created. That's not what this is meaning. When he says the firstborn of all creation, it's even going to be refuted in this passage. It just means to establish his, his rule or his prominence over it. The idea that the firstborn had authority and all things belonged to him. And so that's that's what that is talking about, that he all things belong to him. And this shows in the next verse, it says, For by him all things were created. So immediately that refutes just the the fact that Jesus was created. The idea of that is that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And here we see these these key words, this idea that all things come through Jesus. And we see these three key words about the relationship between Jesus and his creation. Paul says creation, it it was by him and through him and for him. And some of this I know is just going to be rapid fire and it's not so that we can like check the boxes, all these intellectual boxes of, okay, I got it. It's this, it's this, it's this. I just want us to be in awe of who this Jesus is. When we think about all things on heaven and on earth, all things, all dominions were created by him, through him, and for him, by him, his creativity. It was conceived of in his mind. 
One commentary says he is presented here as the architect of creation. That it was created through him, through his, his power and his ability. And it was created for him. He is the goal. He is the centerpiece. It is all to glorify him. He says, Jesus says in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And John says about him in chapter 1 of of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This dispels all of the myths and all the ideas that Jesus was just a a good teacher or that he was a moral leader or that he is like second to God or that he is somehow like lesser than or that he was actually the first of of all of us and was just purely human. It, It refutes all of those things. Creation was conceived by him. It happened through him. And the end goal is for his glory. And this is so important for so many reasons. It not only protects who we believe Jesus to be, who he claimed to be, but it's also an incredibly important reminder for you and me that it's not about us. It's not about us. We so often live our lives day to day thinking that it's supposed to be about us, that I am the main character. And no wonder then that we get so knocked so low by every adverse situation that hits us. No wonder we get so frustrated when things don't go our way. No wonder we get so indignant when people don't agree with us. Because they're not living the reality that we are living, which is that I'm the center of the universe. And Paul is emphatically saying, it is all about Jesus. And that is good news because he is the only one who can save. Believe me when I tell you, you don't want it to be all about you. Because you can't do anything about anything that really matters in the long term. Right? Like, I'm sorry that's direct, but you don't want it to be all about you. It is all about Jesus and it is incredible news. He is the only one who can defeat sin and death. Can you? I can't. He doesn't make it all about him because he's some kind of egomaniac. He makes it all about him because it is because it's the most loving thing he can do for us. That by exalting himself and being exalted above all things, we are drawn to him and not to lesser things that will ultimately end in our destruction. So practically, this matters. This is like a really practical um teaching opportunity here is when things don't make sense in your life, ask yourself, does this make more sense if I remind myself that everything exists for his glory? So often when I think things are confusing or they don't make sense, it's because simply I think that it's about me and about my success and about my prosperity and about my comfort and about my desires. And so often, if I can just ask the question, who is this actually for? Why is this situation, why does it exist? And he says, all things on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all things, everything. I could go off on a whole other tangent here, but I just just want to try one thing here with you. You think about all things created by him and through him and for him. 
Think of something in creation that fills you with awe. Just right now, just in your own mind. I could come up with an I tried to think of like, oh, I could talk about the stars. I could talk about whales. I could talk about birds. I could talk about flowers. I could talk about all these different things. But right now, I would just rather you think of something right now that you say, when I see this in creation, I'm just awestruck. Whatever that is, it was conceived of by Jesus. Every intricate detail and everything about it in its awe-inspiring bigness or its smallness, conceived of by him, created through him, and it performs for him. So if it's a sunset, that sun, the sunset, the sky and everything's not performing for you and for me. It's performing for Jesus. And we get to partake in that. It matters. Birds sing their songs for him. Waves crash against rocks for him. Chipmunks destroy things in my garage for him. It's what they do. It's all for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue that holds all things together. Like in Hebrews it says, by the word of his power. It is all held together by him. So he doesn't just create it and then just let it go and say, all right, have fun. He's also holding it together. In him all things hold together. He is actively holding all things together. He didn't set it in motion. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I wish, again, I wish this is a whole other sermon that I could give, but maybe, maybe what God needs you to hear right now is just one simple phrase, and I don't need to expand on it anymore. But whatever is happening in your world right now, whatever is going on, you can know without any doubt that Jesus holds all things together. All of creation, though broken, is being held together. It won't shatter into a million places. I feel like so many times in my life, I feel like I'm barely hanging on and things feel fractured and broken and they feel like they're out of control. They're not. Because Jesus is holding it all together. And one day, he will bring it all back in perfect unity and restore it into something far more beautiful than you and I could ever imagine in this moment. And then he goes on to the second stanza. And he's going to talk about this relation. That's his relationship to all of creation. And now it transitions into his relationship with the new creation. It says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's the, the head of the body, the church. And so because we think about it in that way, this should affect the way that we value the church. It should be, affect the way that we view the church. 
He is the head of it. It's easy to think of the church as a human institution. It's so easy to do that. It's why so many people think it's disposable. It doesn't matter if I show up. It doesn't matter if I take responsibility for people there. It doesn't matter if I kind of bounce around or hop around. It doesn't matter if I'm divisive. And this idea, this simple idea that Paul exalts, he's saying to this church, he's saying, you, Jesus is the head of the church. And it confronts some of the sinful attitudes that were pervasive there and, and here today. It confronts this issue of authority and it confronts the issue of importance. Like in the issue of authority, it's very clear. Jesus is the head of the church. Okay? It's not my church. So that's one thing it definitely says. A church doesn't belong to a pastor or to a group of pastors or to elders. Like I'm very aware that this expression of Christ's church has been around, was around for decades before I was around. And Lord willing, it will be it will be around for decades upon decades and more and more long after I'm gone. And when we make decisions as elders and leaders in the church, we're not thinking about our preferences. We're not thinking about what we would like to see happen or what we want to do. We're constantly thinking and holding in front of ourselves what is most honoring to Christ who is the chief shepherd and what is most loving and helpful to our people. And there's so much danger in seeing it as, as if, you, if you see the church as like the pastor's church, then you can fall into all kinds of trouble. One is you could, you could worship the pastor and you could think, well, I've got to hear from him. I got to know what he says about this thing. You could also look to him and say, like, well, what are you going to do for me? Like, why am I not growing? Why am I not? Like, you, you just look and say, you're supposed to be doing all these things. You're supposed to be providing all of this. And it's all, that's all dangerous. And that has led to a flippancy in the church of just saying, well, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. I don't really care. I, I'll go when I like what they're doing and I won't when I don't. But it's not my church belongs to Jesus. He's the head. That also means not your church, right? He doesn't say you're the head of the church. Power to the people. Like church is not a democracy. And that's something that's always really difficult to get across in democratic countries like ours. We have this representative republic democracy, all the different words that the social studies people will correct me on later. It's not a true democracy. It's republic, whatever. It's essentially kind of a democracy. It's a short man shorthand. All right. The church isn't that. It is definitely not a democracy. It belongs to Jesus. It has a king. It has a chief shepherd. And that's really important because if I think it's a democracy, then all I'm going to do in the role that Jesus has given me to, to lead and shepherd his flock is I'm just going to take popular opinion polls. And whatever you guys think, whatever the, the 51% says, then we'll just do that because, you know, we voted on it and there it is. But that's dangerous. It's also dangerous if you think that it is your church or that it should be that way. That's going to lead to division. Because every time things don't go your way, you're going to be upset and frustrated and likely let other people know about it. 
See, that's the danger of this. That's why it's so critical that Paul says this. Jesus is the head of the church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. And that should change how we view it. We should love it like he does. We should respect it like he does. We should serve it like he does. But by the way, saying that Jesus is the head of the church, it's not the same thing as saying we only answer to Jesus. Because that's another kind of dangerous thing that happens in our, our culture where some people will say, yep, get it. Jesus is the head of church. That's why I say Jesus is my only authority. He's the only one I answer to. And in my experience, people who say that in relationship to the church are really saying, I am my only authority. Because they function as a church of one, with one pastor, one elder, one deacon, one member. And when we do that, we kind of pop in and out and say, I don't really need the church, but I kind of like the teaching there. I kind of like the music over here. So I'm just going to do whatever I need to build up my church, which is me. That's dangerous. Imagine if I said, I love being a dad. Imagine if I said that. (laughs) I do. I really, really do. Imagine, though, if I said that and I said, you know, I love being a dad because when... Whenever I feel like being a dad, I get to be one. I like having the kids in the house sometimes because sometimes it's just fun to go out and play catch. And it's good for me, it's good for me to, to have a family because it's just a reminder every once in a while that there's bigger things and more important things. And if I don't like what's going on in the house, no big deal. I'll just take off and, and ignore everything else. I'll just go and, and then when it suits me again, when I like the atmosphere in the house, then I'll, I'll go back into it. And I'll definitely be there for big things, like it's, you know, for birthdays and Christmas and vacations. But day to day, I'm just going to kind of do whatever I want and wherever I want to go because I'm only accountable to me. I think all of us could hear that and cringe and say, I don't think you understand what it means to be a part of a family. To that kind of an individualism is at the cornerstone of American culture, and it has done horrific damage to our families and to our communities and to our churches. It even did destructive damage to our military. We were just talking about this. We were, Robbie and I were driving, and we saw a, an Army recruiting poster, and Robbie said, hey, you remember that slogan for the Army back in the early 2000s, Army of One? It's like, yeah, that, that was kind of short-lived. And then I happened to be reading a book about disciple-making movements, and they actually cited that. They talked about that slogan and how it was such a colossal failure for the army. Do you guys remember that slogan? It was back in the early 2000s. Yeah, army of one. Turns out individualism is destructive. Turns out to be a successful military, you actually need people working together to accomplish a goal. Turns out the best military is not just a bunch of Chuck Norrises running around doing whatever they want. So that would be awesome. Just have to rethink that. Imagine if we had 100,000 Chuck Norrises and just go, okay. But it's not, that's not what, it, it didn't work. It started to like really tear apart the fabric of the military. And they were like, man, something's going wrong here. And they realized because we have a bunch of people who think they're an army of one. And it was destructive. 
We're not. We need one another. He's placed people in leadership. If you're submitted to Jesus, then you'll be submitted to the authorities that he has also placed there. And they should lead willingly, not under compulsion, but as servants. And we mutually submit to one another. The elders submit to the church body, and the church body submits to the elders, and we are for unity. It's, by the way, just as another side note, it's one of the reasons why church membership is is a big deal. I used to dislike that term, and I actually never used it until I came here. I didn't like its stigma with being a part of a club, and I thought maybe there's a better word, and it turns out it is the exact word that Paul uses and the Bible uses about being a member of the church body, a member of the body of Christ. And it's important, especially in church cultures. Like if we were in the underground church in China, we probably wouldn't need formal membership or formal membership classes because nobody's coming to church that isn't surrendered to Jesus because when they come to church, they may return and find that their house has been burned down. So you don't really need the membership class to really say, hey, we're in, you're kind of in. But in our culture, it doesn't cost anything. Like if this is your first time here, if you're not a believer or follower of Jesus, you can come here to worship. And hopefully you're, you're welcomed and we love having you here and it's great. But you're not concerned that someone's going to drive by and see you here and then go and set fire to your house. And so therefore, we, we have to figure out other ways to say, okay, how, how do we say, no, I'm here, I'm in, this is my family. And it's important because it's a declaration that you believe that this is his church and you are part of it and committed to it and submitted to it and responsible for it. It's your saying to other church members, we're in this together. Which, by the way, is really what the vote is about. When someone uh, takes a membership class and then they get voted in and people are always freaked out about that, and I totally get that, feels like somebody's going to say, like, well, I don't like, I don't like George, so he's out. I vote no. That's not what it is, really. What it is, it is a, it's, it's demonstrating that this is everybody in this process together. That when, uh, when we line up people that come up and say, I want to join this church, they're saying, I'm committed to you as a church family. And you voting back is saying, we're committed to you as our church family. We are acknowledging and saying we are entering into this covenant with you. That's why it's important. It belongs to him. It belongs to him because he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead which establishes his authority over this new creation. It's built around Jesus, through Jesus, and ruled by Jesus. The church, just like everything else, is created by him and through him and for him. The resurrection of Jesus is the the temporal beginning of the new creation. In In the resurrection, sin and death are defeated. And I believe that when Paul is saying this, he's saying that his resurrection is the beginning of that, the sealing of that, the defeat of death. And then he says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, which both reiterates what he was saying about he's the exact imprint or he is the, the manifestation of the image of the invisible God. But it's going more than that. He's saying the unity of the Father and the Son, they're unified in pleasure. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It's, it's not that God created everything And then creation messed up until Jesus said, all right, I'll go down there and rescue them. And the father's like, okay, go for it. That's not what's going on. That from the beginning, 
The Father, Son, and Spirit together were unified. It was their good pleasure to devise and create, to imagine, and to have the plan of, of rescuing and redeeming and adopting. It matters. The plan was that he would be reconciled to himself because it was, it was against his rule and his creation that we rebelled. And to be reconciled with the Father means to be reconciled with Jesus. And to be reconciled with Jesus means to be reconciled to God. And this matters. It matters so much in our pluralistic society where we just kind of say, as long as you have faith, it doesn't matter. As long as you believe in something, we all worship the same God. I just want to say really clearly, we don't. I think it's disrespectful both to you and to me to say that we do. The God of the Bible is manifested in the exact imprint of his nature in Jesus Christ. The God of the Bible reconciles people back to himself through Jesus Christ. And that matters because it's why Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me is not the only evidence that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's usually the, the first verse that we go to. If someone says, well, do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Yeah, because Jesus said he was the only way. Well, that's pretty compelling evidence. Don't get me wrong. But there's lots of other evidence. And here's some of it. He's saying that he reconciles everything to himself. You can't skirt Jesus to get to the Father. There's no other way to him. Without Jesus, there's no reconciliation, no redemption, no salvation. In Acts 4, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's not about a religion. It's not about becoming more religious. It's not saying only Christians go to heaven. That should have woken some of you up. It's not that only Christians go to heaven. It's saying there's only one name under which we must be saved. And that is Jesus. There are many who call themselves Christians who are not saved. There are many who call themselves Jews who are saved through Jesus. There are many who call themselves and were raised Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists all across the globe who have turned and professed the name of Jesus. They didn't grow up in the American church. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't go to Awana. They didn't decide to become more religious. They didn't say, I'm going to live, try to live a good life or a holy life. They called on the name of Jesus and they're saved. You won't have to show your Sunday school attendance card or your moral life or your voting record. It is the name of Jesus. Through him, all things are created. He has reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. That is who this Jesus is. And Paul turns finally to us and he says, and you, this is now he breaks out of the hymn. He sings this glorious song about Jesus. And he says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Just think about that for a second. This is what he's done. This is who Jesus is. Now you, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. I was once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And he has reconciled us. How? By getting you to get your act together and stop doing bad things. No, he did it himself. He reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and me holy and blameless. That's why we're presented holy and blameless before the Lord is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Above reproach. That is how he's done it. He gives what he requires. He provides the way. And then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith. You're like, that's like a record screech. Like, wait, what? I thought he does it all. Yes, if indeed you continue in the faith. He secures it. He gives it. And the evidence that he has secured it for you is your perseverance in the faith. We always have to be careful when we say, no, 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 I know know so-and-so is good or I know I'm good because when I was eight, I I prayed a prayer and I got baptized and so I'm good. Be careful. Or when you say that about someone else, no, 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 I know that Johnny is a Christian because I was there. Like we were a part of youth group together and he was so passionate for Jesus and I I know he's not living for him now at all, but, but I know he's good. Listen, We are not the judge of anyone's faith. Either way, God is not going to ask us for a reference on any human being. He knows and judges the hearts of men. There can be evidence one way or another, but ultimately we won't know until glory. And people leave and they come back and we don't know John says in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That is hard. And over the years, I have grieved through tears for friends who I walked with and believed, loved Jesus, and we were in it together, and I've seen them stray. And I pray every day, whenever, I, whenever they come to mind, I pray for them and plead that they are a prodigal that God will bring back home, and that he will finish the work that he had started in them. But I don't think about them and say, ah, it's no big deal. I was there when they prayed. I weep. And I beg God, Along with Paul, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So continue stable and steadfast. It matters. Continue in the faith. And if you aren't in the faith, if you want this, if you want salvation, if you want transformation, if you are in need of a Savior, then it is not found in joining a church or by being a good person or by coming and listening to sermons and putting in your time. That's not going to do it. Salvation is found in one name and one name alone. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. By him, through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning, if nothing else rings in our minds and in our hearts and in our heads and in our emotions, that the name of Jesus would ring. God, I pray for every person here and every person online watching this that we would be confronted with the glory and the majesty of who you are and that we would turn to one name and we would not try to find our redemption in our works, that we would not try to find our redemption by a a certain program or, or taking part in something, but that we would find our redemption in Jesus. And that in our pursuit of him, yes, we will submit and love one another. We will be committed to the local church. We will, we will serve. We will give. We will disciple one another. We will lead one another. We will take part. We will study the Bible together. We will pray together. We will do all of those things. But all of those things were created by you and through you and for you. God, please protect us from doing any of those things that are not for you, that are not to exalt the name of Jesus, whether it is in my life or in the community or in my country or in the world, that we would be a people who exalt the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the name that at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God, I pray that we would walk away from here this morning in awe of that name. Pray this in that name of Jesus. Amen.